1: And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Ask anyone who's had a major water leak and they'll tell you most of the damage could have been prevented if only they had been able to stop the leak sooner. Groa, maker of innovative German-engineered showers and faucets, is helping busy homeowners like you prevent water damage and protect your home even when you're not there. The new Groa SenseGuard is an intuitive, smart water control that detects leaks, alerts you via a smartphone app, and automatically shuts off your water supply before more damage is done. Protect your home, vacation, or rental property with Groa SenseGuard and quickly stop water damage before a drip becomes a flood. You can save 35% on Grow a Sense Guard only at groa.us slash hive19. That's G-R-O-H-E dot U-S slash H-I-V-E and the number 19. Once again, save 35% on the Grow a Sense Guard only at groa.us slash hive19. Welcome to Inside the Hive. I am your host, Nick Bilton. So my guest this week is someone who I met many, many years ago when he had a title that was the homeless billionaire. That was what they called him in the media. And that was because he was both a billionaire and homeless. He didn't have a place that he lived. He stayed in hotels or on planes or wherever he was. As he traveled around the world meeting fascinating people, he has since actually settled down in Los Angeles, had a couple of kids, and he is a truly fascinating person to talk to. He is one of those people that you can talk to about anything, and he has incredibly thoughtful and smart responses to any question you may throw at him. So I'm really excited to have him on the show today. Uh, he is a, an investor, a philanthropist. He started a few years ago uh, a group called the Begruen Institute, which is a new think tank that's addressing governance issues around the world, philosophy, culture, politics, capitalism, you name it. And he has a new book out. And so I'm very excited to welcome Nicholas Begruen onto the podcast. Nicholas, thank you for joining us today. This is incredibly exciting. I actually got you to come
1: here, which is a huge deal. Uh, I think it's the opposite. Nick, <laughs> I have to thank you because this is a privilege, and frankly, it's a joy to be here. Well, I'm I'm super excited. You have a a, a book out uh,
0: called Renovating Democracy, Governing in the Age of Globaliz- Globalization and Digital Capitalism. I can't even say it. It's so smart. I can't say the words. Um, which By the you way, you have with- my
1: favorite book looking at me right now. Which one? This is not... You know, what we're supposed to talk about, but Which I can't one? resist. Siddhartha, Hermann Hesse. Oh, it's the it's the best. I've got
0: to, Oh, these are all, these are like my favorite books over here uh, that I'm pointing to right now. The Accidental Universe, oh, yes. Disgrace by, you know, we've got lots of stuff going on. Really? I should just be reading, not talking. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So you have, um, you have a very interesting story. You, uh, for a while, you, were you, weren't you nicknamed the, the the homeless billionaire? Was that the nickname they had for you? And now you've settled down in Los Angeles. You're opening an institute, uh, the Berggruen Institute. You've written a book. Uh, you've had a couple of children. Uh, what made you decide to write this book?
1: What was the kind of the impetus for it? Well, the book reflects some of the things that I'm interested in, which is, you know, on, on a big scale, the future of humanity. But that humanity is really How do we organize ourselves? How do we think of ourselves uh, between uh, uh, humans? And uh, their touch on politics, on social contract, on, you know, what society do we want to live in?
0: Do you think that democracy, so the book title is Renovating Democracy, do you think democracy is broken? Or on its way to being broken or, you know, one of the things that I find, you know, we're going to get to all this, but one of the things I found really fascinating in the book was uh, when you look at China, for example, which you talk a lot about and the, the, the growing superpower that it is that it, in some respects kind of works a little better in some respects, of course it doesn't when it comes to free speech and so on, but there are aspects of it that do. uh, And it's a communist, country um do do you think that democracy in its current instantiation
1: doesn't actually work properly well any system even the best system and churchill you know felt that democracy is the best system because all the others are not as good so no system is perfect but very importantly i think any system even a good one needs to renew itself and one of the things that we've done as humans is to change and um the changes sometimes are deep and sometimes dramatic, and when we see what you know what's happening to the world, China on the other side of our planet is showing that a different culture, a different way of doing things can potentially work. doesn't mean that we should adopt it, but it sort of says. Well, um, there are other ways of functioning on our side in democracies. We can see that we've become less and less able to change, less and less able to make everyone happy. So it's a symptom, and you can see it in all the populism, in all the elections, in pretty much every democracy, that the system is fraying, and um, as opposed to bringing people together, everybody's voice is almost pulling them apart. And that's not very healthy. So we're sort of, in, in my mind, sort of the, the overall um, atmosphere is one of anxiety, mm-hmm. so sort of age of anxiety. And the reflections of it, meaning the uh, expressions of this anxiety, is um, sort of trouble in terms of, Um, pretty much every society and the reactions are towards sort of simplicity, but in a democracy, it makes people um, less willing to cooperate. But part of the issue is the system itself. Even though it's been successful, empowering people is wonderful, but today, they're empowered for themselves, maybe not for the whole. And the question is, how do we get back to bringing people together as opposed to um, having them be apart.
0: Is there a society where democracy without the form of capitalism that we have, where there is a massive lopsidedness to people who are wealthy versus people who are poor, is there a version of democracy without that that has worked better?
1: Well, some countries which are democracies have, let's say, less inequality, Mm -hmm. and you would think that their democracy is a little bit more, um, let's call them more cohesive. Yes, those exist. They tend to be smaller. Switzerland would be one. Some of the Scandinavian countries would be among them. You can even think of Canada or Australia as being, uh, let's say, calmer democracies. Uh, Was also less inequality, so I think inequality is an issue, uh, but it 's not the only issue so what 's the
0: biggest issue in democracy right now that 's fraying
1: what what is the issue that
0: has led to the world that we are in where you have you know uh, a, a, a move away from globalism towards nationalism uh, you talk about in the book a quote that um, You know the the beginning of nationalism is the beginning of a of a war. Essentially, it's 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 not a it's not a good thing. Um, You know we have Donald Trump, we have Brexit, we have Duerto, we have all these people who are um, kind of last grasps at our democracy, and and it seems like they're not working either. So what is it that do you think that has led to the system that we have today? That everyone
1: believes is broken so i think the overarching issue and it's not one just for democracies i think it's one for people everywhere is that the last 30 years have been years of incredible change very fast uh, maybe too fast and we are still analog as humans but change is at a digital pace Globalization, multiculturalism, technology have moved things so fast that we sort of, we're a little bit lost. Who are we? Where are we going? And I think this creates anxiety and it's expressed in a way which is no surprise. People revert to what they know or to an area of comfort or to a simple answer. And that leads to, let's say, populism or leads to. Um, sort of tribalism everywhere. So, not just in the West, but if you look at China, if you look at Russia, if you look at India, um, nationalism um, is on the rise. Certainly the case in the West as well. So, I think the symptom is a global symptom, not just democracies. That's one. Um, In democracy specifically, you have the fact that everyone now, and I think that's good news, has access and has a voice. But the flip side of that is that everybody now has a voice and (laughs) thinks that their opinion is the opinion that should be expressed. And, And coming together with others is sort of less important. And in the past, you used to have filters in essence, editors, or a way to federate all these voices. You used to have political parties, traditional media. Those, in essence, are gone. So in an environment where everybody has a voice, can exercise their uh, rights in a democracy, it becomes much harder for society as a whole to bring people together and to manage. And I think that is the biggest challenge that we have from a... Structural standpoint today with democracy, how do we bring all these people together? So we, in the book, we call it um, participation without populism. So participation is key. And I think that's a great opportunity in every society, but especially in democracies. But how do you bring people together as opposed to people apart?
0: Okay, so you mentioned technology in the first part of that answer, which is the thing that over the past thirty years has, of course, hastened things. There's a there was a statistics a study from MIT that predicted that the amount of technological change in the in the next 100 years will be equal to the amount of technological change that's happened since the dawn of of civilization, Um, and we're only 20 30 years into that. You've got AI coming, automation just the list is just i mean we can't even comprehend what 70 years from today is going to look like um and job loss and so on what is there anything we can do to slow this down or do we have to kind of let it happen at the speed it's going to happen and then fix it after the fact
1: i think bottom line i think it's unstoppable the question is at what rhythm or what speed and um, you know what is the what direction? What are the consequences? If you look at um, humanity for the last few thousand years, we've always evolved and changed. And technology has been sort of almost like our I don't know. It's, it's part of the energy of of change, and um, and we cannot resist technology as humans. Um, it's uh the future is our only destiny, our destiny is never the past it's never what people like to think as the present uh, our destiny by definition is a future because we we are the creatures of change uh, as opposed to you know other forms of life which change much more slowly at least in terms of you know uh, uh, Human scale time. So, our destiny is change. Technology is sort of what accompanies us, or you know, in in that journey. And there have been times when it stopped because of reaction. And you never know. We when it, what, do you
0: mean, what times were it stopped? There was
1: well, in the in the West, it stopped during the Middle Ages. Uh, there was a period of time when. People were, you know, not very willing to um, allow, and there wasn't. I mean, technology didn't really move things. People were resistant to change into new technologies. Then suddenly there was an explosion. That's during the Renaissance, and then again during the Enlightenment, and again during the Industrial Revolution. Now we could be at a, you know, let's call it the AI revolution, and technology, I think, moves at an exponential uh, scale, that means, yes, it'll accelerate. Can we stop it for a period of time? Maybe. It could be now, meaning there's a big reaction, political reaction, but as uh, I mentioned before, I think it's much deeper than just uh, political. And um, so we might slow things down for 10, 20 years, but I think that's not that likely anyway. Even if it did happen, it'll start again afterwards. So technology will change us, will change uh, the nature of, hum- nature of humanity. This is a very unusual time where you know we can really invent the future, invent the future of who we are as humans. In essence, we can play God between gene editing and AI. Um, we can invent or we can create who we want to be that's extraordinarily exciting but um also scary so that's i think why the anxiety level that we have globally is is heightened so one thing
0: that you talk about in the book that i found fascinating was the way china approaches things uh, differently it's what's what's really interesting is kind of when you look at the statistics China and the U.S. are essentially almost the same size in square kilometers. It's 9.5 million square kilometers, give or take, for China, 9.8 for for the U.S., yet they have a billion more people than we do, uh, and they take these approaches to things that are – that we would see in the West, especially in America with the First Amendment and so on, um, as stifling and uh, not allowing free speech and so on, yet – when you talk about Pew research studies, uh, 8 out of 10 Chinese are happy with the way that the country is going and and their society and so on, and only like 3 out of 10 Americans are. Is, it, is there a world in which we stand back and we say, maybe Churchill got it wrong, maybe democracy is the wrong approach, uh, and there's a different one?
1: Well... I said any system even if successful needs to be rethought and um, reorganized so even the right way or good way at least in the world of humans changes so that's number one number two if you compare China and the US the US celebrates the individual um, China in a deep very deep cultural way Is about the community. So it's not just political, it's truly, truly cultural from the beginning. If we think of our religions, they're monotheist, they're about, at the end, an individual. If you look at um, China, it's a mixture of Confucianism, Taoism, Buddhism. Those are all about harmony, community. So it's a very different... um, Ethos, And therefore, the outcomes are always going to be different in terms of how people feel. We're also at a different stage in terms of our development. America has been very successful. It's a pretty mature environment, but with disequilibrium. So, you know, that creates unhappiness. China has disequilibrium as well, meaning inequality and rapid change. So that should create um, anxiety and um, you know people who are unhappy on the other hand they're still building and when you're building in a strange way when you are still in a struggle in essence the struggle is maybe painful but it's also the what gives you um, purpose and um, and hope China still at, at that stage and the real question that we also have in in the West uh, relatively rich countries is uh, what's our um, what's our purpose? What's our hope? And um, hmm. I think there's more in front of us, a lot more. But it looks um, a lot less clear. What is one? The, what is we have competition from another system? That's China. Yeah. Two, we have all this technology in front of us, which is very empowering, but also scary. So. The future is there, but it looks much less clear. My guess is that 30 or 50 years ago, there was a future which looked just simpler. And complexity or choices, which are wonderful, uh, creates also um, fear.
0: You're listening to Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. So sticking to a weight loss plan can be difficult for Anyone, especially when you don't know how to handle the thoughts and obstacles that hold you back from actually reaching your goal. Most people who lose weight gain it back again almost instantly, and that's because most weight loss plans just tell you what to do while you're on the plan, not afterwards. With Noom, spelled N-O-O-M, you'll lose the guilt and learn how to develop a new relationship with food, not just while you're on the Noom plan, but forever. So you can try something different when you're trying to do a weight loss. Playing with new and because there are different results and different approaches. Each individual is customized. Uh, What happens is so fascinating is you get a goal specialist who is a uh, behavior change professional who is also a nutritional expert and fitness trainer all in one, and they can kind of create a a plan for you. They can walk you through it. Uh, There's a community so that you feel like you're not alone as you're trying to lose, lose weight or trying to get healthier. You can track your meal habits. You can visualize portion sizes, see calorie density all these incredible things from the new map. It's a really fascinating thing. The thing that I found so amazing about Noom was that they ask you a bunch of questions when you sign up and then they kind of show you the answers for what it is you're trying to do. And I discovered that I was actually trying to lose some weight so that I could be healthier and live longer and spend more time with my family and seeing that uh, presented to me the way they did it um, really has inspired me to eat healthier recently. Noom is designed for results. It's out with the old habits, in with the new. You can sign up for your trial today at noom.com slash hive. That's n-o-o-m dot com slash hive. Uh, what do you have to lose? Visit noom.com slash hive to start your free trial again uh, today. Uh, again, that's noom.com slash hive. Start losing weight for good. N-o-o-m.com slash hive. You mentioned that uh, that in America we have this system where, you know, we're always trying to attain things in the system, and and um, there's this there's competition, there's this we there's this constant question that every single person in this country asks themselves of, what is the reason I'm here? What am I supposed to be doing? And in China, it's different, right? There's this great quote that I I underlined. Um, uh, it's a famous dictum where it says, black cat, white cat, what does it matter as long as it catches the rat? And that's kind of like the philosophy in China, right? Where <clears throat> it doesn't matter. We have a a a goal that is different. What is the goal of people in
1: China compared to the goal of people in the US? So that's a quote from, I think, Deng Xiaoping. Yeah. and And the reason why he said that is, Somebody asked them once, I think, you know, what's your definition of communist China? And in essence, what the answer is that, yes, in theory they're communist, but their practices are not very communist. So they're a mixture of communist, um, capitalist, Confucian, all at once. And they, at the end, don't really define themselves. We in the West have... This need, which is deeply cultural, comes from, I think, our monotheist religions, where we see things as one way, one truth. There has to be one truth to everything. And even the scientific method is all about finding you know, the, the right equations, uh, the right calculations that is the truth until it's proven wrong and you have a new one. But it's always about one version of the truth. So as individuals, we sort of view ourselves as very much an individual apart from the world with a mission and with our own version of the truth. If you look at China, the truth there is not one. It can be distributed. Um, it can be communal. And it's not one against everyone else. It's everyone together. And their version of the truce is not one truce. It's, in essence, equilibrium or, um, you know, a sense of harmony. Totally different uh, way of thinking about the world. Ours is, let's say, potentially more dynamic. It's about competition. It's about winning. So winners, winners and losers. Their view of things is much less about uh, winners and losers. You have everything sort of under the heavens uh, and therefore it's all one at the end, which is stifling for us, but maybe a little easier. Do you, Uh, I
0: mean, it sounds a little, I mean, look, I know that there's a million problems with China and and the system and especially when it comes to free speech, but it sounds like that's a little bit less anxiety driving that their, their version of it would you say that that's true or that ours ours just feels like it's it it's it while we are living in a society where there is for the large part safety and opportunity uh, and and wealth and happiness and so on uh, it's also underlied by this constant anxiety. Uh, by everyone and um and it when you talk about china it, it doesn't seem like that's the same
1: feeling well here you you almost have to sort of prove yourself every day to yourself and everybody else and um you you don't really feel like you're you know you you, you just are so it's sort of you know it's almost like a daily fight uh, for your place in the world. And the wonderful thing is that the the amount of options we have, uh, I mean, not everyone for sure, uh, but more, you know, a lot of people have options. And that's wonderful, but it's also um, scary. And um, if you have a simpler way of, um, you know, if you have fewer options, Go to China. You can, you know, you have a much more conventional way of of being and looking at the world. You have a very strong family structure. You know, the state is there, and you don't question it. So that simplifies things. It's a little bit like what we were a long time ago with, you know, the strong influence of religion. So it cuts both ways. You can say, well, it gives you less freedoms for sure. On the other hand, it gives you more. Um, security. Um, there's an argument for each side. I, I think um, people who um, are sort of made up in a way where they like challenge and risk uh, will be happy in, let's say, the very competitive, empowering Western environment. But not everybody is like that. And um, I think a lot of people Um, I think most people feel feel like that that they are lost
0: yeah most people are not like that I think that there's a it's a certain percentage of people that are and it's a small one and um, all right so I want to switch gears a little bit Um, one of the things that has come up recently is um, that we there are a lot of people that believe that that the problem is not necessarily democracy but the problem is capitalism uh, and that the version of capitalism that we have in America doesn't actually work. Um, especially when you look at the mass inequality and that, that, that will be, there's, you know, you talk in, in your book a lot about Piketty, uh, and his, his, his feelings on capitalism and, and the systems and, and what's in place and what's not. You've got a, a huge movement in Congress right now with people like AOC and, um, and others, Warren and so on, who are talking about, you know, these tax structures, how billionaires should be taxed 80, 90 percent, how there shouldn't be people with that much money in society. And you talk a bit in your book about this idea of a post-capitalist scenario. Do you think that, first of all, can you explain the post-capitalist scenario for listeners? But second of all, um, do you think that the that the version of capitalism that exists today works, or that that's something that needs to be kind of remodeled too?
1: Definitely capitalism, like in any system, uh, needs to be remodeled, as you say, and uh, renovated. So capitalism has conquered the world, including China. China is capitalist in terms of, you know, the way it functions. So the same issues that we have here uh, all around the world, because pretty much every society is capitalist today. So the inequalities and the potential inequality, which thanks to technology could increase, needs to be addressed. We are, we've shifted, in my mind, the post-capitalist idea is that beyond labor and capital... What's going to be the most valuable already is, in essence, it's information, information, yeah. algorithm, technology. So you can create a new business, and it, becomes, it can become very, very valuable with very little capital. Look at the businesses that we know uh, here in the West, um, like Google or Facebook. The amount of capital that was needed to create those businesses are very very, very small, and the amount of people also. So now they employ, you know, fairly large amounts of people. But it's, but it's nothing compared to businesses of the past. That's right. So you don't need labor, you don't need capital like you used to in the, in the past. So you have to reinvent yourself, because the question is, as the value, the monetary value is going to go to, in essence, the owners of the intellectual uh, um, rights uh, meaning the value is going to go to the algorithms in essence and the owners of the data um, it's going to be fewer and fewer people and more and more concentrated the good news about this is that technology is going to um, free up people same way as industrialization freed people from uh, having to work on farms so it'll be freeing, but how do you make it fair? Uh, and fair is a few different things, not just economically, but also in terms of human dignity. If you have much more time on your hands, um, you know what do you do with it? How do you feel good about yourself? What's your occupation? Time is the most valuable um, commodity we have. Um, and uh, it's the one that is... Exploited by others, but at the end of the day We're going to have the ability which I think is wonderful to exploit it ourselves. We're going to what do you mean by that meaning we're going to with um, You know with development in technology, we're going to be able to I think over time uh, Really own our lives more and more meaning own the our time and because automation will do everything else? A lot. But what, so in that instance, what will we do with our time? That's the key question. So the, you know, you could end up like what, you know, the Greeks, um, in, you know, sort of in, in Athens, um, the, the fantasy of the Greek philosophers was, well, you know, the, the most evolved, um, humans were the ones who spent their time, uh, uh, thinking and, um, um, you know, you, you know uh, focused on the important issues and questions as humans, um, spend time on uh, contemplation and beauty and obviously uh, pleasures uh, as opposed to work. And we may get there one day. So we we not with will, social media we won't <laughs> we will well that's the thing that's, and that that's the choice the, the thing I is know, the, that's yeah. that's the choice the choice is what happens to this all this time where does it get consumed so uh, you let's assume that people will have more options in terms of what to do with their time so will they spend it with each other, will they spend it, but a you second, know, thinking, but will they, they spend it um, um, looking at nature, or will they spend it uh, working for these social media companies?
0: Well, the, the so, algorithms, that, so the algorithms that are going to free us up from our time are also designed to outbest us in consuming our time. You see now, you know, like, I think that the big reason that there's been a massive pushback against social media is that... Um, the the algorithms and social media know us better than we know ourselves and they know how to suck us in like fish hooking onto a hook and we can't get free and so the the only solution is to delete it it's to walk away from it and so i want that so as they get better as ai you know the thing that i think is so fascinating is ai is not going to take jobs in a vacuum it's going to it's not like we'll have just driverless cars one day. It's we'll have driverless cars and and drones delivering packages and and things we haven't even thought of, like robots building houses and what, who knows what and um, artificial intelligence actors and actresses and and the 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 challenge I personally see that you're talking about is is not necessarily what we'll do with our time, but how we will fight against the machines to be able to keep that time
1: well but that is in essence it's the same do we want to do we want to be a sort of a free fish or do we want to be a you know uh, a fish that gets hooked and um, and I think that's our opportunity but it's also going to be our challenge I think humans have always uh, uh, needed sort of a sort of a community and the question is, what is that community? Is it a cum- community of other humans? Is it a community that is, um, let's call it a more artificial community, that's social media? Um, is it a new kind of community that will involve the machines beyond, way beyond social media? Um, so that's one of the key questions. So the good news is that we'll have time and the bad news or not the bad news but the real question is what do we do with that time and when I say time it's really who do we or how do we engage Um, because we'll have in theory much more choices and um, right now uh, the excess time we have is being uh, consumed uh, on social media and and the question is does it get you know consumed by being more creative by being um, engage with other humans it's a very good question and right now it looks like as you say the algorithms at least the social media algorithms are winning
0: you talk about uh, talk in the book about social media and how um it has freed us up so people everyone has a voice but at the same time and you mentioned this earlier it's given us a world where everyone has a voice and in it it and what has happened is someone like Donald Trump has gotten out the biggest voice. And I've written several articles years and years, I mean, years, even a year before he became president, where I said that this was the thing that was going to separate him, was that he had tried to run for office dozens of times before, from governor to president and so on. And the thing that he was an expert at was social media and was able to kind of catapult himself into the spotlight as a result do you and then you've got brexit you've got what you've got you know nazis you've got all these things that have happened as a result of social media and then you've got the negatives and the positives sorry like black lives matter and me too things like that do you think that this you know you were talking about technology earlier and it's it's and the constant with humans to always be moving into the future do you think that we will uh, we have created these things that we thought were going to be good that ended up having really negative consequences? It's a two-part question. One is, do you think that it was worth it? Uh, and the second question is, do you think that we... Is there ever going to be a world where we can create technologies uh, and and anticipate the negatives and prepare ourselves for those, or are we just not wired to do that because
1: we're so busy trying to get there as quickly as we can? Well, look at a human. Yeah, A human, you know, has... If you look at yourself and we think in in sort of moral constructs, pretty simple ones, especially here in the West, so we think about our qualities that are good and not so good, and both of the both these qualities exist in us, let's call it the good ones and the less good ones and I think technology is just a reflection of us. People have always thought, well technology is outside of us, but it's not. It's part of us. We've created it. And the idea, which again is very Western, to separate us from nature, to separate us from technology, even though we've created the technology, I think is a little bit naive. The technology is us in some ways. It's our it's part of our expression. And It's no different than us. There's good and less good, meaning any technology, especially the powerful ones, are going to be powerful both ways. Nuclear um, power can be very beneficial and, um, you know, deathly. Uh, And I think it'll be the same with every new technology. Gene editing is going to be very beneficial in terms of potentially... uh, helping us in terms of terrible diseases. Um, It may even help us be healthier, uh, potentially live better or even longer, but it can be manipulated in ways that are terrible. So with the good comes the bad. It's, I think, inevitable, because this is how we are as humans. We categorize these things as good and bad, we have to find a way to navigate between, you know, with them. We obviously want more good than bad, and we've survived as a species because, on balance, uh, the good has been empowered, and our instinct for survival is so strong that we've been able to sort of empower the good, let's say, at the expense of the bad. But uh, you mentioned terrible periods in the past, like you know, the what happened uh, in in Nazi Germany. Um, there are periods of time when we go to the other side and when we go to the other side up to now at least it's always been us humans we are the only ones to blame it's not technology itself technology again is a tool but who? Who? who is Hitler he's a human who elected Hitler lots of humans uh, who fought for uh, Hitler lots of uh, humans who fought against uh, uh, Hitler lots of humans who won at the end uh, humans. So, it's always us. So, we we can blame every everything else, including technology. Let's not blame technology. We have to blame ourselves. But, Therefore, yeah. we do have to think about these things in advance. We have to think of it uh, ahead. And for example, if you think of the cyberspace, uh, politics, uh, and not surprisingly, is much slower than technology in the real world. Mm-hmm. So cyber security um, the issues that we have in terms of cyber war and some of the uh, recent issues in terms of um, uh, interference in politics in uh, elections uh, well this, these were things that were really not anticipated so this time around with AI and gene editing uh, well it's still early so I think it's, it's very important that we Think ahead of um, the deployment of these technologies because they're going to be irresistible.
0: You're listening to Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. Did you know that one of the most important things you can do for your health, it's not eating an apple or going for a run. It's actually brushing your teeth. And yet most of us do a pretty pathetic job at it. Quip is a new electric toothbrush created by dentists and designers and I am quite obsessed. I think obsessed is actually not the right word. I'm beyond obsessed with this thing. It's amazing. It's got these sonic vibrations that are gentle enough on your sensitive gums. People often brush too hard or they don't brush enough and sometimes electric toothbrushes are too abrasive. This one is none of that. It's got a built-in two-minute timer so it pulses every 30 seconds so you know when to move your toothbrush around your mouth so you're not just kind of focusing on one area and skipping another one. It's why 90% of us don't actually brush for two, mi- two minutes and 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 that's why this little vibration thing tells you what to do. Uh, There's a system they have where every uh, few months you get a for five dollars, you get a dentist recommended uh, new brush head that you can stick on. That's because most of us forget to get new toothbrushes. Once again, incredibly unhealthy to do that. Quip is one of the first electric toothbrushes accepted by the American Dental Association and has thousands of verified five-star reviews. I literally love this thing. I've been brushing my teeth with it for the past few weeks, and it's changed the way I brush my teeth. And I'm not just saying that. It is truly a fascinating, amazing little toothbrush. Uh, They have a special deal for listeners of Inside the Hive right now. For $25, you can get a Quip with a uh, refill pack for free and the Quip toothbrush. There's lots of different colors to choose from. Uh, go to getquip.com slash hive. That's getqui com slash hive right now. And for just $25, uh, get your first uh, toothbrush with your refill pack. Once again, getqui com slash hive. Getquip.com slash hive. You won't regret it. So uh, Nick Bostrom, who runs the AI Institute at Oxford University, the, fu- the Future Institute, um, has talked about what you talk about um, with the technologies of the past and how they can be used for good and they can be used for evil. And his argument is that so far we've we've been lucky that we haven't destroyed humanity as a result of these technologies. Do you keep you up at night? Do you worry about the fact that, that, that we
1: could? I think he's right in the sense that it could... You know, the machines that we are developing uh, in essence could be a new species. The question is, will it be a species with us or a separate species and a species against us ultimately? It could happen. Then the real question is, should we care? <laughs> meaning meaning if I think so. our, if this new species is going to replace us. Maybe it's a better species. In essence, it's our child. So another way of looking at it is we are the parents of that species. So let's try to establish a link between the AI, uh, this new species, let's say, that comes out of us and us. Then we have a better chance for us as parents to be part of this chain and survive. Or it could be like uh, many uh, Greek myths where the uh, child kills the, the parents. Mm-hmm. Um, that could happen. Um, you know, we're wired for survival uh, as a species. So this is very, very uncomfortable, but it may actually be where we headed. And the way it's going, maybe we should plan in that direction and work with it, not against it. Therefore, we have a better chance to survive, meaning really establish this uh, child and parent relationship because the AI is really our child. If we think of it that way, if we think of the AI not as separate from us, as part of us, it's maybe a different way of thinking about the future and technology uh, in a more uh, let's say, harmonious, more constructive way um, as opposed to, uh, you know, a fight.
0: That's interesting. I mean, I've <clears throat> I've heard other CEOs in Silicon Valley say that, that, that maybe the, the next version of AI and the species that we build could be a better version of us. It just seems, and that may end up replacing us, it just seems a little, you would never see, you know, uh, whales develop better whales to replace themselves you know what I'm saying it's like we, why would we even bother going down that road wouldn't we want our species to survive but maybe deep down we probably don't I don't know I
1: mean <laughs> well we, we are wired to survive but we're the species that I think at least uh, you know from what I know has able to um, make the most transformation um, and the fastest. And I think we just can't resist it. So no matter what uh, we think is right, I think uh, in a world that um, has different cultures, different political systems, different um, uh, values, uh, somebody's going to develop it. If it's not developed here, it's going to be developed somewhere else. That also means that we need to think ahead and we need to cooperate with other cultures and other nations. So we can't, this is not a vacuum. This is going to be very tricky. So in the cyberspace, we didn't really cooperate. In nuclear, we've cooperated, you know, reasonably. Um, but this is what the way. problem
0: with gene editing is, right? Is that we don't have a choice in America with gene editing of how it happens because China's going to do it anyway. And therefore, we all have to kind of do it together. Do you think gene editing is the biggest risk of the new technologies that we're going to create?
1: I think you know AI and gene editing are the two big ones, um, and I think they're. I mean, they're very powerful. Gene editing could happen faster, and uh, and superintelligence AGI uh, probably will take a little longer. Uh, but they're both. I mean. They're potentially both coming. What Gene you, editing is there today, but it's it'll take a generation before we see the implications of it, right? Probably, but do you believe? Who knows? I do mean, you, it could be. I mean, we yeah we are talking about you know dozens of years, uh, but definitely within dozens of years. And what are the
0: what are the, some of the examples that you've heard about that? Is it that we're going to make a less empathetic human race, or a more empathetic, or six foot four Chinese men that can run as fast as a cheetah, or that can see through? What well, I mean? What are some of the things that will happen in the long term with this?
1: Well, I'm not a technologist. I think these these are I'm the wrong person to try to answer these. But it's in that direction. Yes, you could make uh, humans um, more powerful, uh, better in some ways, and um, that's great, but more powerful means also, you know, with power, you in essence have responsibility. And I think that it's going to be the same with these superhumans.
0: All right, we have time for a few more questions and then we'll let you get out of here. Um, uh, Well, I
1: did want to answer one question that you put on the table, then we went off a little bit. Uh, The one question about rethinking capitalism. Okay. So I think capitalism... Uh, has conquered the world but needs a serious rethink. And um, I think what uh, the debate in the U.S. and, you know, in these coming elections is going to be, well, you know, inequality, how do we uh, address it? But that's not just in the U.S., it's everywhere. And um, and I think it's very legitimate. The question is how do you rebalance things uh, to make it fair? And... um, the you know the first reaction is simply well take from those who have and give it to those who have less which is like universal basic income essentially and and the you know the the most primitive expression of it is just to say all right uh, let's raise taxes and it's been the system that has worked not perfectly but it has worked in the past but it really pits people against each other. Wait, which system is the one that's worked the raising taxes? Yes, just Got you know, it. redistribution through taxes. Yeah. Another way to redistribute is universal basic income. And it at least gives everyone a minimum potentially. And in a rich society, why not? Because a rich society in theory can afford it. The question is is that enough? Does it give Do people feel that they're in the same boat? Does it give more than money, meaning dignity? And what we've been thinking about and what we talk about in the book uh, and what one of the things we work on at the Institute is a concept that we call pre-distribution. That means, uh, as opposed to universal basic income, it's sort of the equivalent of universal basic capital. So the difference here is that as opposed to um, everyone sort of fighting it out um, and then you get redistribution through taxes or through some kind of subsidy, which is universal basic income, you get something from the very beginning that as somebody who's part of society, you should own a piece of society, of what makes society productive. So in a world where more and more of uh, the value is going to be In the digital uh, assets, everyone should own a piece of those. How do you do it in a way that's fair? Well, you still want to have capitalism with its, um, let's say, uh, productive powers uh, of invention and uh, competition. Uh, At the same time, you want everyone to participate in it. Uh, everyone to feel that they're part of the journey as opposed to one against the other so our idea is get a piece of everything from the start so to put it in concrete terms uh, let's say uh, you nick you start a business um let's say that business my business you're going to become uh, a barista coffee a coffee company You're going to become the most successful coffee company in the world. Okay, great. Um, And uh, (coughs) you make make very good coffee. So I think you've got a chance. Okay, thank you. So uh, this is going to be the most successful coffee company in the world. And when you create it, uh, you will uh, take a percentage of your business, pick a number, let's say 20%, and you will contribute it to the state. And the rest, 80%, is for you and whoever else you bring in at the beginning who puts up the capital. So as a capitalist, you're taking risk and you own your business. But in this case, the 20% uh, that's owned by the state is basically owned by everyone. And, uh, are you
0: talking about the state as in
1: government or are you talking about the state as in the people who work for the company? Government. But when I say government, it's not actually government. It's the people. So it's like a big sovereign wealth fund. So every... New company, you can't go backwards, so it's going forward, not backwards. So every new great coffee company or great whatever company um, uh, would contribute a percentage of its equity to the big fund that is owned by everyone. So every person, you, but also me, and everyone who's listening uh, to the podcast today, would own a piece of your company, of your great coffee company. That means... um, that if it's very successful, everyone has a piece of you. Everyone is sort of rooting for you because your success is their success as well. And the value of your business uh, that's owned by the people, because it's in a big sovereign wealth fund, um, will accrue to everybody's benefit. And ultimately, your business produces cash flow. That cash flow is dividends that contributes to the budget of the state, and the state is able to render uh, services. And the idea that these services, I mean, basic services, uh, are needed for anyone uh, in, in a healthy society, especially in a wealthy society, the state can afford to give everyone certain minimums. And so, I'm I, that, so I the, the idea of redistribution. I is to put things up front as opposed to after a fight. So everybody gets certain goods from the beginning, not after the fact.
0: Okay, great idea. I love it. Okay, I think it would work perfectly. Now pretend that it's not me that's starting this coffee company, but it's a guy called Donald Trump. And you're saying to him, I want you to give 20% of your business to the state. And he, who is greedy, uh, like most people, uh, is like, fuck that, I'm not going to give 20%. It's my business how do you ensure that 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 happens does it have to be a, a
1: law that that every business has to give 20% or yes same as taxes as opposed to taxes this would be a different way of doing you know the same thing but i would say a much more inclusive way a way that's uh, less divisive uh, it's not about winners and losers because everyone has a chance to be a winner in this case uh, but yes, you, it couldn't be voluntary. In theory, at the beginning, you could give it as an option. You could say, well, in exchange of lower taxes or less taxes, um, you give a certain percentage of your business to the state. So again, everybody wins. And I would say also, going back to technology, thanks to blockchain or so, you could attribute shares and dividends to every individual. Doesn't mean that they have the political rights they sh- or all the you know trading rights, because again, it should be for the benefit of everyone long term. But what I'm saying is that you bring people together as opposed to people apart. That's the concept. It's very early days. We're working on it. Uh, but the idea is bring, make capitalism, uh, you know, something for everyone to be a winner in, as opposed to um, where we are today, which is too much about winners and losers.
0: And so, what are you going to do to try to get that to happen? Are you lobbying? Congress people, are you just going to present
1: the idea? Is it uh, well? I think we're at a, we're at a time when new ideas are needed. This may be a good one or a bad one, uh, but you have to present the idea. In our case, we are talking to different people about it. We are uh, studying the idea, and we'll see how far we go. Uh, maybe it's the beginning of a good idea, or maybe it'll be the um, spark. That, create, that brings a different idea to the table. But I think uh, we and others should, in, in, in a time when invention is needed, uh, y- you, know, you, you have to bring uh, fresh ideas to the table as opposed yeah, to just completely. taking the old ones and just making the old ones, the old ones like old um, uh, you know, uh, um, weapons, yeah. And so you make them just sharper and meaner. It um, doesn't make things better. Uh, in our case, we, uh, we're trying to, it's like developing, we hope, um, a, new, um, uh, a, new, a new species that's going to be nurturing.
0: Um, all right, last question for you. Two, the second to last question, sorry. Uh, my penultimate question. Um, <clears throat> in the book, you talk a little bit about immigration. And, uh, and it, when you kind of look at, immigration right now it's it's essentially the you know there we we're in the midst of a lot of chaos in society a lot of change a lot of misunderstanding a lot of confusion Um, you've got technology that's changing things you've got populism you've got all these things and you've got the climate change that's you know that's coming we are happening now and then there's this thing called immigration. And what it seems is happening is that you have... Not only is wealth being redistributed within specific states, uh, um, and I mean countries and, and so on when I say that, but, uh, but it's also being redistributed uh, very quickly um, globally. Um, and globalism and all these things are, are changing this. And it seems that across the, across the world... Uh, Across the globe, you have this issue of immigration, and the approach that America is taking right now is, I think, a diabolical one. It's just put up a wall, and whatever happens to them, happens to them. Um, What are some of the things, the solutions that you came across that you think can solve this immigration problem?
1: Well, immigration... has become highly politicized yeah. which is an issue at the same time we have to remember it's all about cultures so I think it's been in, but I think the two are a little bit separate I think that immigration has become a political tool to you know, point out to terrible ills that's the political side I think the cultural side, on the other hand, I think is much more legitimate, which is that when you go into a newer environment, uh, that culture uh, wants to survive. So you join that culture, or that culture will reject you. And I think that what's happened in some of the immigration is that the immigrants uh, in the host country um, have a disconnect. And if the disconnect is too big... um, you have disequilibrium. It's almost like, you know, homeostasis, where it, it goes out of whack, out of balance, and you, you have tension. It doesn't always have to be that way. I mean, America was built by immigrants, and all in all, I'm not saying it was smooth, but all in all, it was a nurturing environment, and immigrants felt that this was a place to go to, and America, all in all, was um, uh, a welcoming country. I think that in this political environment, not just in the U.S. but all around the world, where there's uh, fear of the future, uh, where globalization, multiculturalism, technology—those three have moved the world maybe too fast. There's a reaction, and I'm not surprised by the reaction. So immigration will have—I mean—will have to be sort of rethought immigration generally i would i think has been positive uh, for the host countries because immigrants tend to you know bring new energy uh, to any environment and the question is how do they culturally uh, integrate Uh, that's the cultural side but politically um you know every country right now is you know reacting to immigration um I think that, you know, that's toxic. That's, at the end of the day, not the way the world in a natural way is going, which is, you know, mixing and immigration. But we may have, you know, in any evolution, you have a period of, you know, where you stop or you pause. And we might be in a period where for years it could even be decades there's a pause there's a pause of what of people letting people in or immigration but that that they
0: have in migration but there's not going to be a pause in migration i mean climate change is going to is going to make it more difficult to grow crops in the in you know 10 degrees north and south of the equator it's it's going to lead to less output which leads to less gdp i mean it's just all across we're going to
1: see it happen more not less yes I think the pressures are going to increase not not less (coughs) as you say but the the solutions at least for now will have to be not immigration because most countries right now uh, are reacting to immigration not just the US you see it in many many countries in Europe Mm -hmm. Um, you see it certainly in Asia so I think the same issues are going to uh, occur, everyone. So one will have to, and that's going to be a global issue, one will have to find ways to um, empower populations uh, to stay where they are uh, more than uh, migrate, which used to be uh, the case, in a way that's um, uh, humanly uh, right. and. Um, and give them the opportunity to be there. It's going to be tricky because, as you say, if you're in North Africa and you know you can't, you know, grow crops anymore and live, you're going to want, or you're going to have to immigrate. Well, the other way of doing it is you're going to have to uh, make a hostile environment uh, a better environment to grow crops. I mean, some countries have been able to do it. Israel has done it. So. Technology will be helpful there, mm. um, but uh, we're not in a, in a in a world which will be friendly to immigration for a while. You can argue the pros and cons from a moral standpoint, and I think that's a very, uh, that's a very valid debate. but politically right now, uh, very few countries um, will have open borders, and you can argue from a human standpoint. Um, all you want, I think countries are closing borders all around the globe and
0: but isn 't that that 's going to
1: be a reality we n- will need to deal with isn 't the
0: moral aspect of that the most important part of it it that's is
1: th- it is but uh, can you you know the, the moral arguments are the weightiest, but they 're not the ones that politicians uh, today at least, will listen to because they're not the ones that get them elected. And in the countries that uh, are not democracies, uh, the leaders of those countries uh, will remain leaders if they go towards nationalism. I'm not saying it's right, but it's just the reality of where we are today. doesn't mean we should um, support it or defend it, but we have to deal with it. So we have to come up with new solutions at least for a period of time.
0: All right, last question for you. So um, you uh, spend your days talking to lots of fascinating, intelligent people at the Institute and um, you obviously spoke to lots and lots of people for this book um, and did lots of research. You recently had uh, two kids. Do, Do you look at it's more of an existential question. Um, But do you kind of look at society and life and humanity and the world we live in and wonder if there's a larger purpose to it all, if there's like a, a reason for all of this or if we're, you know, the book over here that the accidental universe argues that it's just one big accident and that mathematically we just happen to be in the right place that was able to create life. And I'm just curious if you, as someone who speaks to all these people and thinks about all these different cultural uh, responses to life, um, if, if that's something that you have thought differently about
1: recently. Well, I think it's a very good question. <clears throat> I think the purpose or the point of life is actually life itself, is living. Mm. But... In our case, as humans, because we're self-conscious, is what do we do with that life? How do we live that life? So, it's the most fascinating and extraordinary journey because if we have choices, or at least we have the perception that we have choices, Mm -hmm. uh, then there's a lot we can do with it. And uh, what we do with it is the life or who we become and it's a journey i think it has different chapters and allowing change uh, is the hardest but the most you know exciting part of the journey and it's it's one of discovery you, disc- you you change you discover you you go on a path and the whole point of life is as you go along the path you potentially have new doors, open them. Otherwise, you won't see the other side. Sometimes it'll be good, sometimes it won't be that good. But that's what life is, meaning living. And uh, if you can, at least, um, discover, experience, and share that life, share your experiences, and that's with others, including children. Um, And that's the only way you sort of live, is by Living the life, sharing what you do, um, because we are alive. If we don't do that, we aren't. So it's circular, hmm. but very powerful. Yeah.
0: Well, let's hope where our kids are around to see the species take over uh, societies that we create. Nicholas, thank you so much. Uh, The book is Renovating Democracy, Governing in the Age of Globalization and Digital Capitalism. Uh, It's a fantastic read, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much. Thanks to my guest this week, Nicholas Begruen. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. That's me. You can find these on Apple Podcasts, Radio.com, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review while you're there. Thanks, of course, to the folks at Cadence 13 for their brilliant production work. And most of all, thank you to my sponsors, Groa, Noom, and Quip which sounds like a new boy band when you put them all together, please support them the same way you support this podcast. I will see you all next week.